We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues, where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time. And the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years, and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last, and they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Picky eating is something we often accept, but could it be a sign that something else is going on with your kid? A lot of parents will admit to me that they think that their child looks kind of wan and, and tired and pasty and, and uh, pale and doesn't look vibrant and healthy to them. That's Kelly Dorfman, a licensed clinical nutritionist who specializes in targeted nutrition therapy to address complex medical problems. Kelly is also a speaker, an award-winning author of Cure Your Child with Food, and she's been a featured expert on CNN and in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and O Magazine. We'll talk about how nutritional deficiencies, food intolerances, and anxiety can contribute to picky eating, the symptoms you should look for, how to encourage healthy eating habits, and where to turn for help. So Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the Food Issues Podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Julie. Great. So why don't we dive right in and talk about picky eating? I think it's safe to say that most parents have kids with picky eaters. And in fact, there was a recent survey that showed that 39% of parents say that it's a challenge in their home. So what do you see in your practice? Well, I see a lot of picky eating and and there's levels of picky eating. There's a general like, please eat your vegetables. And then there's very serious, actually medical condition called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, where kids are, are frantic about food and react in, in a very abnormal way that's very difficult for parents to take care of. So it's a significant problem. And research has also found that picky eating is associated. Now, it's, it's hard to do this with a direct causation because we're not going to starve children and see what happens to them. But there's a direct association between picky eating and an almost double chance of developing mental health diagnosis. Wow. Okay. So, and do we know why that is? 
Well, I, I think that we're, we have a pretty good theory about that, which is that your body isn't the government and it can't run on a deficit. So if you don't have it, you budget cut and survival is the most important thing. So that's going to be the last thing, budget cut. So things like learning to speak a second language and mood and, <laughs> and energy, those are things that will get cut. Right, right. And I had seen that you wrote an article about anxiety and picky eating. And, you know, obviously now we're seeing increasing rates of anxiety and depression, uh, particularly among children due to the pandemic. So what kind of role does anxiety play in in picky eating? That's an excellent question, Julie. And it plays a big role because when you think about Kids in today's society, especially with the shutdown and pandemic that's raging, they have control of so few things. But the one thing they do get to control is they can close their mouth and you can't make them. Yeah. So so that's a place that they very often when people are anxious, they want to find something they can have some providence over. Right. So so for kids, it's like, well, you make me go to bed. You make me stay home and make me wear this mask. But gosh, darn it. I don't have to eat that. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that's where. So very often these issues are playing out in food. So I'm seeing more and more psychological issues that we used to take care of other ways um, playing out in my realm in nutrition. Okay. And what are the most common challenges that parents talk to you about when it comes to feeding their kids? Oh, there's so many. Uh, But I think one of the first things is that they're time constrained and they're under a lot of stress too. I just read a research project that was done at Iowa University where they're finding that women have dramatically increased their intake of alcohol <laughs> since the pandemic because they're under stress. I mean, that's what they're reporting. And so the parents are under stress. They're under a lot of time stress. And so they just end up saying, okay, just eat something. Thinking, all right, tomorrow I'll take this on. But then again, tomorrow there's another issue. So they get backed into corners. Nobody means for their kids to become picky, difficult eaters <laughs> But it only takes a few times where you're just kind of letting it go and the kids find an area to crawl through with that and and garner some kind of control over their lives. And then the battles begin. Yeah, definitely. It's it's certainly even a year into the pandemic, I think we're still trying to figure out how to balance working from home, many of us, and and get a healthy dinner on the table and, you know, stick to those regular mealtimes and snack times. It's tough. It's very tough. And then in the beginning of the pandemic, there was problems getting out and getting the food, but that seems to have gotten a lot better. But, uh, you know, and also let's face it, we want comfort foods. And when you're under stress and your anxiety's up, you crave a sugar and starch. I mean, nobody says, oh my goodness, I'm under stress. Give me some asparagus. I mean, it's always (laughs) fork over the cookies and ice cream. And uh, because there's a temporary shift metabolically, your stress hormones will go down temporarily when you eat starch and the things that we, or sugar, or the things we normally associate with comfort foods. So for a short term here and there, that's great. But for a long term, it's a real problem. Definitely. So I think, you know, when it comes to picky eating, I think our society as a whole we just expect that our kids will be picky eaters. And we, you know, many parents, I think, kind of joke about it. You know, there they are go, being picky again. And, you know, they just sort of fall into the, this mentality that this is what it is and we have to accept it. I feel a lot differently, but would you say that picky eating is developmentally appropriate, especially around that toddler age? Well, picky eating is definitely a phase that people can go through, uh, and mostly at around age two, as you said, the toddler age. And that's because developmentally what happens at two is that toddlers start noticing that there's cause and effect. This is a developmental milestone. It's like, oh, I can throw that shoe in the toilet and it makes a cool noise. And I can (laughs) scream and my mom comes running. So they're trying to figure out how much power they have over the world. And that is exactly what the Terrible Twos is about. I wonder what will happen if I throw my food. I just talked to a parent this morning and she said, oh, yes, uh, little Tommy is in the throwing the food phase. Yeah. (laughs) and that's exactly what happens is like, uh, I don't want to eat this food. So I think I'll throw it. I wonder what will happen. Right, right. Yeah. And so that it is appropriate for them to test you and food and sleep and all kinds of things are going to be on that list of things they're going to want to test you about. So yes, but this 
cavalier, like, oh, yes, they're just being fussy. And it doesn't really mean that much as long as they're growing. And that seems to be uh, the sidewall out of this. It's like, we're not going to worry as long as little Sarah is growing, you know, all is well. But that would suggest that the biggest kids are the healthiest kids or the heaviest kids or the healthiest kids. And the kind of malnutrition we have in this country, we do have some food scarcity issues and uh, they're a big concern. But mostly what we have is poor quality uh, food consumption. So there's plenty of calories, but they're poor quality. Definitely. Yeah. And so around that toddler age, we see that develop. But could it also be that our food preferences are changing around that age? To some extent, that might be true. But don't forget that the companies have stepped in and they have put just enough salt and sugar in these kind of foods, especially when you think of toddler snack foods like crackers that have a little bit of salt on them, you know, and, and it's that make them appealing because they're trying to say, no, eat my food you know, right. versus brand X and or even just a plain of food. Because if you eat a strawberry fruity uh, snack food, it tastes more like strawberries than strawberries. Right. And so it's much more appealing to toddler taste buds. So the food companies are starting very early uh, in the seduction routine with your children and parents are harried and, and busy and they're, you know, using uh, the advantages of having quick and, and easy snack food available. And before they know it, the kids have, have gotten sucked into it. I actually call crackers toddler crack. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you think back to, you know, my kids are 10 and eight, but I think back to when I first started feeding my oldest and, you know, a family member had said, here, give her puffs because they're, you know, you can start them early on finger foods and it's good for fine motor skills. But now that I look back and think, what was I doing? You know, why didn't I, why did I give that to her? I mean, at the end of the day, it's processed foods and babies really don't need that at all. They really don't need that at all. Yeah, yeah. So when, so you talked about, you know, we have this mentality in, the, in this country where if the child is growing, we're not, we're not overly concerned. And I think that mentality also carries over at the pediatrician's visit. Um, there, there's a lot of focus on growth trends. And, you know, as long as your child's growing and in that, you know, healthy BMI range, we're okay. Um, but when is picky eating something that parents actually should be concerned about? Well, if you're looking at your child and saying uh, he or she is a picky eater, I think you should follow that instinct and be concerned about it. Or if you look at what your child is eating and don't forget they're under the pressure of growth, you're not growing anymore. You're done growing. <laughs> the only way we can grow as adults is out. Right? So, right. so if you look at what they're eating and thinking, goodness, if I ate that, food during the course of the day, I'd be cranky and tired, then you're dealing with the picky eating problem. Okay. Okay. Are there other signs that, that your child is a picky eater? Well, I think the other sign is that children in general, you want them to be happy, right? And enjoying themselves uh, in, in, a, in a perfect world. You know, kids are, are playing and exploring and they wake up with a smile on their face. So if you have a child that's very grumpy a lot or going up and down and very moody, I would be concerned. I, I would at least look at the diet and see if there, there could be some reason like blood sugar fluctuations or poor quality of food that would lead to those kind of mood shifts. Okay. And what about physical signs like constipation, anything else? Well, constipation is more related uh, often to Yes, the quality of food, we always think about fiber, but also, uh, for example, we know even in adult studies that sometimes the casein protein, which is a, a protein that's found in, in dairy foods, the main protein in dairy foods, is associated when it's not processed properly with chronic constipation. And so it's, it, it's sometimes constipation is because you're eating something that is irritating you. Sometimes it's because you don't have enough fiber or fluid like water. And uh, it also can be uh, bacteria imbalances. I mean, constipation has a lot of different moving parts to it. It can be low muscle tone. Uh, it can be have sensory issues, having a hard time figuring out which muscles to, 
deal with or that you're having the sensation you need to go to the bathroom. So constipation ends up being a fairly complicated issue. And, and by itself, it doesn't necessarily mean picky eating. Okay. All right. That's great to know. Uh, yeah. But it's, but I, I think another thing that's just a basic kind of mother and father and parenting and caretaker 101 intuition is that does your child look unhealthy? I mean, a lot of parents will admit to me that they think that their child looks kind of wane and, and tired and pasty and, and uh, pale and doesn't look vibrant and healthy to them. And that would be another concern to me. Of course, if they're getting sick a lot and frequently, that's a concern. They're picking up every cold. That's been one of the blessings of the shutdown has been that there's been a lot of parents who've told me that their child has chronic asthma or we're constantly getting colds. And since the lockdown and all the mask wearing is staying away from everybody, that they've actually had much less illness. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, but yeah, so there, I think, but use your instincts. Most parents, it, sometimes they'll say they eat, their child eats great and I look at what they're eating and I'm not so sure, but for the most part, they are pretty much aware. And if they think that that's the case, it's, it's probably true. So can picky eating be a sign of, of underlying health conditions? Well, it absolutely can be. And, and that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because very often kids are picky and you think about what do you eat when your stomach's upset, for example. So let's say you're a three-year-old and your stomach's always been upset. What would be your point of reference? Mm-hmm. You know, there wouldn't be any. Right, right. Your right. stomach's always been upset. And so what will happen is what do you eat when your stomach's upset? You want to eat yogurt and crackers and bagels and bread and, and the kind of things that picky eaters eat. So it's possible that the reason they're eating that way is they're trying to calm down their stomach. And one of the very heartbreaking uh, things that I sometimes hear and, uh, when parents come in is that if we fix underlying problems like that, they'll find out in retrospect that their child's stomach always felt bad. And they only figured that out when it stops feeling bad and the child notices the difference. Yeah, yeah. So what are some other underlying health conditions that could be, you know, a result of picky eating? Oh, there's a long list, Julie, of okay. that. I mean, anything from mood problems to inflammation to autoimmune disease to pica, which is eating non-food uh, items, uh, can be related to that. Developmental issues. I mean, you have, there's a chemistry to everything. And if you raise your hand, there's a chemistry to that. Speaking has a chemistry to it. So almost anything kind of deficit uh, from uh, picky eating can result in some kind of physical, behavioral, or emotional symptom. Okay. So that's a hard one to tease out, right? Because a lot of kids have sensory issues and um, developmental delays. And so how do you know if you should go to see you know, a registered dietitian nutritionist, a feeding therapist, an occupational therapist? How do you, fi- how do you figure out where to start first? Well, that's a very difficult question because it might, it's probably different in different people. And of course, depending on who you see first, they're going to say, yes, I'm the right person, right? So I would say, start with the chemistry because it'll make the rest of the therapy go better. And so the most uh, referrals I get are from therapists. I mean, I get enormous amounts of referrals from occupational and speech and physical therapists uh, and psychologists and people that are dealing with kids. And then at some point they find out that, yes, uh, little Justin is, is only <laughs> eating crackers for three meals a day. And maybe that's why we're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, or or uh, is, you know, ruining dinner uh, time every meal and they're trying behavioral issues as it's not working. And, uh, and so my book is full of kind of stories like that. So it's not that nutrition is always uh, the underlying issue. Of course, there's a lot of cultural and complications in life and things, you know, illnesses that can happen, but it certainly is a foundational one and it tends to make other therapies go better. So I don't think you should do nutrition instead of speech therapy or instead of occupational therapy, but certainly if you are investing in long-term therapy for developmental delays, you probably want to check out the nutritional aspects with somebody who has some experience with it. Okay. So let's talk about more in broader terms of picky eating and the way that it affects mealtimes and family life. What do you hear most often from families about how it impacts their life at home? 
Well, mostly what I hear about is how it just ruins it for everybody. So if there's one picky eater, they tend to co-opt the whole meal and it's all about what they want. And then the quality of diet for the whole family tends to deteriorate because the parent doesn't want to be making uh, separate meals. They don't want to become short order cooks, right? And some, some of the parents have just thrown up their hands and the kids eat the standard kids' menus of, of pasta and chicken nuggets every night, and then they eat their regular food. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that's a, a real issue. And the other thing is that a lot of them have given up because they don't want to have screaming fits or even worse, that the child just refuses to eat anything. Right. But, but obviously that creates a bigger problem long-term, right? Oh, it's a huge problem. And in a way, the child then has taken control and has the parent by the neck because you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to let them eat. And then they're going to scream and cry, not sleep well, keep me up all night. And then the next morning is going to be a mess again. And, you know, they don't see a way out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So in your book, Cure Your Child with Food, you talk about research about twins and picky eating and if it can affect IQ. So I found this really fascinating. Can you talk about what this research found and what it means for parents? Yes, that's an old study, Mm -hmm. really, because we don't do a lot of these kind of studies. They're tricky studies to do. And obviously, we're not going to, as I mentioned before, starve a child and see what happens to their reading abilities. So what we do instead is we find natural situations and twins are very ripe for that. We love twins because in theory, especially if they're identical, they're genetically the same. So that takes a big set of problems out, right? That could be complicating factors. So they looked at families that had twins where one of the twins was identified as a picky uh, eater or, or at least significantly pickier than the other. And they found that there was an measurable IQ difference. And this is the really interesting and kind of wake up point, especially with boys. We don't know why, but the boys were more affected. And there's been other studies that have found similar kind of uh, issues. So the boys, if the picky eater was a boy, they had more cognitive uh, differences. So so the conclusion of the, the person who did the study was that we have been taking this picky eating thing you mentioned in the beginning how cavalier we tend to be. And part of that's just to assuage our guilt a little bit, right? Because uh, everybody wants to try to be a good parent, uh, but that we have underestimated how serious this picky eating thing can be. Right. Yeah, definitely. So when parents are trying to figure out picky eating and their feeding problems with their kids, what are the questions they should be asking? Well, I think that the figuring out is not so difficult. The real problem is what to do about it. I think most parents are not stuck at, is my child a picky eater? That We we can get through that in five minutes. <laughs> the real issue is now what do I do? And uh, sometimes I, I once had a family with a child scream so much, they lived in an apartment building, that they were afraid that the neighbors would call the police. Wow. Uh, so they just gave in. Mm, yeah. And uh, that, that's a real problem. Uh, so and so they were they were so kowtowed by it. But I mean, most of the issues are not at that level. For the most part, where you start with this is start with a structure where you insist on eating behaviors just the way you insist that they go to bed and they brush their teeth and they put their shoes on before they go outside. It's interesting that as parents, we are very comfortable saying you can't go outside without a pair of shoes on. You might step on an attack, right? You can't yeah. go to bed without brushing your teeth. No, very few parents are like, oh, I'm just going to give up on, on those things. No, they're, they're pretty firm. But when it comes to food, there's all this emotional stuff like, oh, I don't want them to become uh, even pickier eaters or to hate me or to develop some kind of other eating disorder, not recognizing that picky eating is an eating disorder. Okay. Uh, and, and that's it. I mean, uh, I say to parents all the time, you're afraid that they're going to develop anorexia, but they already have an eating disorder. It's just not that one. <laughs> you know? Okay. So, yeah. Wow. That's a bold statement. It, but it's true. It's yeah. really true. It's, it's like we, we look at picky eating, like you say, is that's not an eating disorder, but anorexia is or bulimia is. And of course, those are eating disorders. But picky eating, we've taken uh, under, we have underestimated uh, in, the impact of it. So, yes, I mean, j- just asking your child, to, you know, to try a bite of food or to finish uh, their vegetables before they're ready for dessert 
uh, these are are not torturing things to do. These are just making requirements like parents do. And, you know, if, if your child objects to going to bed when it's time to go to bed, Sometimes you give in and, and you let things slip, and we all we all do that. I mean, we're not you know, completely rigid, but for the most part, you'd say no. That's not acceptable if they go to bed at two in the morning every day, right. and, it, and it's not acceptable if they never eat fruits and vegetables and only want to eat uh, pancakes. But there's definitely a balance in how we approach it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about nutritional deficiencies because I found this really interesting in your book and I don't think many people are talking about it, but what are the nutritional deficiencies that could contribute to picky eating? Oh, excellent question. Well, the most common one, there are, there are many uh, more minor ones, but the one that I end up focusing on very often is zinc. And the reason I focus on zinc is because uh, uh, in zinc deficiency, and we've heard a lot about this because of COVID, you uh, lose your sense of taste and smell, but uh, at the most severe level, but at a moderate level, your taste and smell can be altered so that things taste and smell differently than they do to most other people. So a lot of picky eaters, uh, you know, dad is, or, or grandma is, is frying up some onions for dinner and everybody's like, ooh, yummy, dinner's almost ready. And they're like, oh, and they're running to the... <laughs> bedroom and hiding because the smell is so offensive to them uh-huh. or things, you know, so, so things that smell good or, or you know, seem, uh, you know, mildly offensive to other people are extremely uh, disturbing to them. And zinc often can fix that. And it can also help them to taste things that are more subtle. So if you think about what, for example, a plate of peas tastes like, mm-hmm. those are not strong flavors. You know, they're pretty mild flavors. And if you uh, don't have well-developed smell and taste or you have altered smell and taste, they just could taste like a pile of mush. Right. So so I found when I correct that, the kids are often more interested uh, in in more mild things. So they're not so addicted to these packaged foods that are so flavor enhanced. That's right. Yeah. So my older daughter, she's 10 years old. And a few years ago, we were working with our naturopath on um, trying to handle her food allergies and approach it from a more natural perspective and try to, you know, handle it so that it would get better. And um, the naturopath had her drink something. And actually, our whole family was there. We all drank it. And, you know, it didn't taste like anything to her. And so she said that she was zinc deficient, as was I. Is that what is that? how we figure out if we're zinc deficient or not? What is that exactly? Well, that is, that is a nice tool that doesn't involve a blood draw. That's called zinc drink. And you can buy that actually at some of the higher level health food uh, pharmacies and stores or certainly online. And it's a zinc sulfate solution. And if you don't have enough zinc, you don't taste the sulfate part. So uh, it tastes neutral. But if you have enough zinc in your system, the theory is that It'll give you a, a very unpleasant taste. So it actually makes you gag. So you don't do that test to people unless you're pretty sure <laughs> you're not going to taste it because otherwise you have a lot of gagging kids or adults in your office. Okay. And so that's what happened. So uh, it, it, it is a nice screening test. I mentioned that, that I think also in my book. Uh, there's You can look at blood work, although blood work will not find a subtle issue. I often find that kids will come up on blood work to be okay. Um, the range is pretty wide, but they benefit sometimes anyway. And a typical picky diet, which usually involves a lot of white foods, uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of, of green and, and other kinds of foods tend to be low in zinc. Okay. So what should parents do? Can they ask their pediatrician for a test or? Well, the, most pediatricians, unless they're like a naturopath, like you talked uh, to, or more integratively or nutritionally oriented, don't run those kind of tests. They'll offer a blood test perhaps, but okay. um, you can, like I said, you can buy that test over the counter if you want to. Would you say you could work with a, with a nutritionist on oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's always, always best. I mean, it's not always available for everybody, and, yeah. but that's always best to get some kind of input. And if you do that test, uh, run that test at home, make sure you have a glass of water or something nearby 
in case you actually do taste it because you're going to want to rinse that thing down quickly. Yeah. 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 I know my husband tried it and he immediately tasted metal, but the, you know, and my, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, my other exactly. daughter, but the two of us, no, we didn't taste anything. Um, so let's move on to food intolerances. So what exactly are food intolerances and how can they contribute to picky eating? Well, I'm glad you asked that because food intolerances are a big uh, factor and there's a difference between food intolerances and food allergies. So food allergies are now medically narrowly defined as histamine reactions. So that means that when you run into something, you will have an itchy or rash or some kind of swelling reaction within two hours of contact. So when somebody eats a peanut and their throat swells shut, that's a histamine reaction. So most reactions these days are non-histamine reactions. So that means that you could have a headache tomorrow, or you could have a stomach uh, ache, or you could be tired even, or just cranky, or your blood sugar could fly all over the place. So these are considered non-allergic reactions or sensitivities. And they're much more difficult to test for because you have to know what the reaction is so you can apply the correct test. Okay. So if you watch any of these medical shows on TV, one of the problems I have with them is that these doctors are walking encyclopedias. They know the most obscure tests to do for the most obscure things, no matter uh, what the symptom is. But most of the time, we don't, some of these things we don't even have tests for. Like we don't have a good cytokine test, for example, which is a messenger molecule that could make you tired or depressed after eating something that doesn't agree with you, for example. or we don't have a real workable test. I mean, there is a test available in research and is, is, um, there may be a couple of companies that are trying to look at this right now for Roundup in food, for example. Wow. And so Roundup is a very common chemical. It's a, one of the world's most popular herbicides that is now, unfortunately, on a great number of our foods. Right. And when you are exposed to that, some people react to it, uh, but they think, oh, I just had some rye bread. I guess it's the rye, but it, it might have been the Roundup on the wheat or the rye. Wow. Yeah. So it can could, it could be very difficult. Yeah. Okay. So how can parents go about investigating if their child has a food intolerance? Well, that, that's the thing. They may need some help to do that because there's so many possibilities. One of the problems we've run into the last couple of years is that we all know that so many people seem to not tolerate gluten and wheat right now. In fact, you know, most of the major chains now have gluten-free uh, menus or at least uh, choices on the menu that are gluten-free. And that wasn't the case 20 years ago. But all of a sudden, uh, five or six times more people than actually have a disease for a gluten intolerance, which would be celiac disease, are seen to be reacting poorly to gluten. So the question is why? Why is that suddenly happening? And one of the theories that I have uh, subscribed to, and I think the research is pretty good about, is that it's not the wheat in a lot of people, it's actually the Roundup that we're now using, or uh, the active ingredient Roundup is called glyphosate. So it's actually the glyphosate that's on the wheat that is making people react poorly to it. And glyphosate is used as part of harvesting the wheat in a process called dry harvesting. It's a very stable chemical, and it kills the bacteria in your gut. Right. It's also been noted that, and this is being fought out right now in the courts, that it's a carcinogen. Right. And there was a big uh, multi-level lawsuit about that that was won by the people that said, yes, uh, this stuff is a carcinogen. Now, that's going to be refought out through appeals, I'm sure, for many decades to come. But that in France, they uh, are thinking that Roundup's a uh probably a carcinogen. Uh, so this, this is, we, you know, this is something that we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. But before cancer, there's an awful lot of GI troubles and neurological issues. And so if you're re reacting to Roundup, that could be from eating corn or because a lot of corn is GMO and is also produced with Roundup. It could be from wheat. It could be from oats. So it's very hard. Uh, if you can't just tell every time I drink a glass of milk, I have a problem. If it's not at that level, you may need somebody to help you figure out some of the things you're not thinking about. 
Okay, so it can dairy also be a, a food intolerance in kids? Well, yeah, there's I mean, yeah. Yeah, any food can bother anybody. Okay. I mean, for example, I, I for decades, olive oil was always a go-to oil in my practice for people who had reactions because literally nobody seemed to react to it. So I thought, okay, this is great. All of a sudden, one day, I started having people start reacting to olive oil. And I thought, no, I can't lose olive oil because olive <laughs> seems to be clean and almost nobody reacts to it. But it turns out that in um, Italy and Greece, they started cutting a lot of olive oil with hazelnut oil. Wow. Because they were running out of uh, their demand for olive oil because, you know, we've become much more foodie oriented. Uh, it's like a globe, global phenomenon. Right. And so all of a sudden they needed a lot more olive oil than they could produce, but they had some hazelnuts laying around. So... Of course, anybody that had nut problems then started reacting to olive oil. So there was this big thing about contamination uh, of olive oil, and it turned out it wasn't the olive oil at all. It was something else that was in there. Should parents put their kids on an elimination diet, or should they seek help first? And what are the tests that are typically run? Yeah, I think they should get help because, uh, you know, if you take toddlers, for example, off of milk, uh, which is the most common thing we do because that's... Uh, their first food, right? And so if they're reacting to something, it's something they're eating a lot very often. And dairy has a high reactivity. It's one of the top eight very reactive foods. You have to make sure they have enough protein in their diet because the average toddler drinking a couple glasses of milk, they're getting like half their protein from dairy. To make sure they have enough calcium for bone uh, development and vitamin D for immune and, and bone development. So there's a lot of considerations about that. You don't want to just go to the health food store and put them on oat milk or almond milk. Mm-hmm, right. Where a cup of almond milk has about one gram of protein, where a cup of cow's milk has eight. So it's not an even trade. Right. Now they have new milks that they're using pea protein for to uh, make up for the protein because the manufacturers realize that that's a pretty rough trade. I mean, coconut milk has zero grams of protein. Right. <laughs> so... So you have to, so they're trying to fix that gap. But pea protein is another potential allergen. So if you have questions, you should definitely talk to somebody that knows all the ins and outs. I mean, this is a whole field of side trips and complications, unfortunately. What type of professional do you recommend parents see? And then will they run blood tests to determine if there's a food intolerance? Well, and that, that for, again, Blood tests are great for allergies because they're looking for a very specific kind of reaction, uh, which is a histamine reaction. Now, there are other kinds of blood tests, like IgG blood tests, that are looking for other kind of reactions, but they have a tendency towards false positives, so that if you eat the food a lot, uh, it tends to come up positive. So those tests have some pitfalls, but allergy tests are not accurate under age two. Okay. If they're, if they're positive, they're accurate. That means, yes, there's a problem. But if they're negative, it could be because developmentally, the child has not developed enough immune function to react to the test. Interesting. So before two, the tests are kind of uh, difficult. Uh, Like I said, they're great when they're positive. If they're negative, parents can still think, oh, there's a problem, but they can't always figure out what it is. Uh, and, And then, of course, the food reactions, like chemicals and things like that, we don't have a lot of tests for some of them. Sometimes we don't even know what we're looking for. And so the best thing I often find to do is to keep a record of what people are eating and look at the reactions and look for patterns. Uh, Some people like to do IgG tests, uh, which are a non-allergic delayed reacting marker. But again, they tend to come up positive for foods that people eat a lot. Right. But they can sometimes help if there's a lot of reactions that are going on. Sometimes uh, parents are looking for more obscure chemicals like oxalate. Uh, or um, salicylates or these other chemicals that run through a number of foods. So it's not like the oranges per se, but it's because oranges have a lot of salicylates in them. And so what type of professional should someone see? A nutritionist, functional medicine doctor? Right. You want to see a a nutritionist that has uh, experience in the area you're looking at. So if you are particularly concerned about your child, you want to have a nutritionist that has some experience with kids because they're not little adults. There's a lot of uniquenesses to what they're doing. Or if it's a child with developmental issues and picky eating, then you want somebody who knows a little bit about development too, because you can't just 
put the food in front of a child with a developmental issue every day and then hope that they're going to eventually want to try it. Right, right. Okay, great. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we'll talk about certain conditions that could affect a child's ability to eat. People often ask me how I got my kids to be such healthy eaters. And the truth is that one of the best things I did was bring them in the kitchen with me to cook. And research actually shows that kids who learn how to cook, eat more fruits and vegetables, are more willing to try new foods and have healthier diets overall. If you don't know how to cook or don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The course, which was created by a mom of four and former teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they even made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up today. So in our last segment, we were talking about food intolerances and elimination diets and kind of how to tease out all those different parts and help your child. So let's move on to talking about uh, different conditions that could affect a child's ability to eat. So what are the symptoms that parents should look for that could interfere with that, such as sensory processing disorders, excessive drooling, things like that? Yes, um, there are definitely developmental and neurological things that can affect eating. So sensory processing disorder is a big one. All kids that are on the autism spectrum have sensory processing disorder, but there are kids that are not on the autism spectrum that also have sensory processing disorder. So sensory processing uh, disorder is not a real recognized illness that's listed in the DSM, which is the manual that tells doctors uh, what codes to use for insurance. So these, uh, so because it's not in there, just putting that on an insurance form often will not get coverage. The insurance companies fought very hard not to have this um, added to um, the DSM because there's so many children that are affected with it. It's basically um, immaturity and neurological development. That's what it represents. And so your primitive nervous systems do a combination of reading data and then collating it. So, you know, how much pressure uh, do I uh, put on my arm when I, when I put it around somebody? Or uh, how tight is my waistband? Or how much light's in the room? And where are my arms and legs? And all this information, your primitive nervous system reads and collates so that you can navigate the world smoothly. When people have disorders with this, they misread the data. So things that 95% of us would think are not too hard might feel too hard to them. Or things that 95% of us would say, oh, that's just too much in terms of how loud you talk or you know, how, how hard you bump into somebody. Somebody with a sensory processing disorder might say, oh, no, that's just about the right amount. Mm-hmm. Okay. And because their sensory system is misreading this relative to the rest of us, then what happens is they're operating in a world that's different and they have a hard time because imagine a child who thinks that the right amount of pressure that you, uh, you know, put into a, a slap on the back is enough to, to send somebody across the room. Yeah, you know? right. 
So they're not going to have many friends, right? So uh, they're going to be chewing on the, the furniture. They're going to be doing things that most of us would find quite unpleasant. And so you can't fix that by saying, no, 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 uh, Sam, that's you know too much because their system says, no, that's the right amount. So that's when you bring an occupational therapist in to help them out. Food has so much sensory data to it. It has temperatures and colors and flavors and smells and, and textures and you name it, not to mention taste. We all think it's all about taste, but there's so many other factors about food that if a child has a sensory processing problem, this is like an assault on their system. So you ask them to try a bite of food and they act like you're trying to strangle them. Wow. Or ask them to chew yeah. through rocks or something. Yeah. And you're thinking, this is an awful uh, lot of fuss about nothing, but to their sensory system, it's very much uh, overloading and overwhelming. Okay. Wow. So how do you know if that's affecting your child? Well, it can be difficult, but usually they're sensitive in other areas too. Mm, like the, yeah. the noises that they are overly sensitive to. If there's a fire engine that goes by, they cry a lot more than the average child or they get, uh, they worry about it in advance and that kind of thing. So most parents realize that they have a lot of trouble going to sleep and settling themselves down or they're late toilet trainers because they can't figure out what that signal is. Interesting. Okay. Great. So we talked a little bit about vitamin and mineral deficiencies, but what are the signs a child is actually malnourished and how can this, this lead to picky eating? Well, that's a fuzzy line to say, when are they actually malnourished? Because they're very often malnourished in a couple of nutrients, but not every nutrient. And malnutrition from a global perspective is often defined as not enough calories or not enough protein. And so it's just these macronutrients and not looking at the smaller nutrients. So I think it's the things we talked about earlier, which is the child's sick a lot. They're not vibrant. They have low energy. They're not sleeping well. They're moody. They seem cranky and tired a lot. Okay, great. So in your book, you talk about the EAT, the EAT strategy. Can you talk about what that is and why that's really important? Well, I just made that acronym mm -hmm. up to look at a simple a way to start uh, adding foods. And uh, what we basically do is we try to eliminate the junk because it's a lot easier to take out stuff that's bad than it is to have a child eat stuff that's good. So sometimes if a child's quite picky, but the only food on their, <laughs> their menu is pizza, I'd rather have them have pizza two or three times a day, then fill that in with crackers. Okay. You know, or, yeah. or uh, even junkier foods or, or just uh, empty calorie snacks. And so, th yes, that's not the best diet you could think of, but it's a, a little, it's a start that we, we remove the sugar cereals and uh, the excessive juice. You know, the American Pediatric Society Association uh, recommends that Kids under six not have more than four ounces of juice a day, and kids under two have none. Right. And so that's a big difference. I mean, a juice box is what, eight ounces, right? Regular juice box. And so that's double that already uh, for a child under six. And so, so we would take out the stuff that's really empty, the, the desserts, and, and we would concentrate on the few foods that they might be ready to, to eat. And then we want to add foods uh, one at a time, and we want to do that repetitively. So the way most people add food to a diet is we happen to be making green beans tonight, so uh, we want you uh, to, you know, Amy, to, to try a bite of this green bean. And then there's a lot of fussing and crying, and the meal's ruined, and maybe Amy chokes down one bite, and then the parents say, oh boy, we're not going to do that again for a while. And then they wait two weeks or four weeks or four months and they come up with another food they happen to be making and they ask her to have a bite. And you go through the same thing over and over and you never get any traction. So what we want to do instead is we want to let the child know what we're going to be working on and do the same food like for two weeks in a row, just one bite. Okay. And this does several things. It allows the child to regulate and calm down about it because it's not like now, now dad's going to, today it's going to be peas and tomorrow it's going to be broccoli. And it's always 
gosh darn it, something, right? So I'm just <laughs> going to say no to everything. But instead, it's like, oh, it's going to be one bite of a food that you let them choose whenever possible between a couple of choices. And usually we do something they used to eat because most kids, as you mentioned, are pretty good eaters until 20 months or two when they discover that they don't have to be. Right. And so uh, you, you can make a chart, you can make it easy so they know, but you want them to know what's coming and know there's a beginning and a middle and an end to the activity. So it's not like you're going to ask them to eat an entire pot full of peas. Right, right. I, I mean, you don't know how kids think about this kind of stuff. They just feel like it's never going to end and it's going to be too much. But if they know it's going to be one bite and then we're going to put a sticker on the chart and we're going to move on, right? They can uh, regulate that and then you can help them deal with the distress they're feeling about that and get over it. Okay. So how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, for one thing, uh, you realize that the first time that they eat something, it's not going to be a great success. And we have this idea in this country that, oh, I I gave um, my child a little bit of broccoli when they were 10 months old and they didn't like it. And now they're six and they still haven't reintroduced it. Right. Yeah. Uh, So the first time you try something, I mean, people uh, from Mexico eat hot sauce because they got introduced to hot sauce when they were young. I mean, people from the South eat turnips because turnips are part of their diet and they've had them since they're young. So basically, a lot of research has found we eat what we're used to and what we get a lot of. And so the key is to get in the diet so you get used to it. Yeah, definitely. Not to love it instantly. Right. Yeah. And it can take, what, up to 15 exposures before your kid will accept it? The first couple exposures are are horrible. And and a lot of times kids spit it out. I mean, occasionally they even throw it up. And and you just have to be very blasé about that and say, oh, that food fell out and and Uh try that again tomorrow. (laughs) Okay. That's great advice. Uh, Yeah. You're you're trying to calm them down about it because don't forget a two-year-old in particular and a three-year-old, they're looking at you to see how they're supposed to react. Right. Again, they're, they're testing. What can they get out of this? I mean, how much power do they have? So if you're hopping up and down or making a big fuss about the little problems they're having with this, then they think, oh boy, this is bad. Or, you know, this is something that will work in my favor not to have to eat this again, <laughs> depending on how you're looking at it and how clever your child is at that age. And, and they're going to, you know, go with that. That's so true. Yeah. But if you're kind of blasé and, and you kind of sort of set up a structure that's kind of friendly, but, uh, you know, firm and friendly, it's not rigid, that of course you're going to try a bite of this. And when you, you know, well, and then I use something called when then, you know, when you're done with uh, your one bite of food homework, you know, then we're ready to, to uh, play on, our, on the iPad or go for a walk or whatever it is that you normally do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great strategy. I know Amy McCready talks about that. That's helped our family a lot when I'm consistent with it. (laughs) Well, it is. It really is because it's a natural consequence. In other words, me, you don't get, if I don't come to work, it's not punishment that I don't get paid. It's a natural consequence (laughs) of not showing up at work. Right. Yeah. So the same thing, you you, you have to set this up for the kids uh, that, you know, if they're not finished eating their food, they're certainly not ready for dessert. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or, or they're not ready to go outside and, and play or whatever it is. And so you, you just want to let them know what the structure is. And it's amazing how many parents, and this is when the problem is light or to moderate, but usually when the problem is light to moderate, if we can get the parents just to calm down about it and really buy into this as a family value, the same way you deal with going to bed or going to church, whatever your family values are, then it works. I mean, I can't tell you my parents said, oh, yeah, I just told them they had to do it. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Definitely. So for parents of picky eaters, are there certain foods that they should focus on? And if so, how should they introduce these foods? Yeah, uh, that's a very important question. And what they want to do is when you're if you're trying to do the strategy where you're doing the same food for like two weeks in a row, like one bite, the first food I like to start with is a food that they used to eat, but they've decided at some point is no longer their favorites. <laughs> they won't try to touch it. And so there's very often like parents will say, oh yes, they used to eat this or that, but now they won't. Well, that's a great food to start with because they already like it. They just forgot or changed their mind or they're testing. So I like to start by giving them a choice of two foods and try to pick something they used to eat. And if there's nothing they used to eat that they can think of or uh, that uh, will work uh, for that, 
you can always look for something that's similar to something they eat already. So if they're eating French fries, for example, you could consider a sweet potato fry, which is very similar, just a different color. Mm-hmm. So you look for something that has a similar texture or you know, is, is something that has enough characteristics in common that it's not a gigantic change. So you're not going to change a child who eats nothing but pureed foods to a crunchy carrot, for example. So we talked a little bit about choices, um, but we don't want to go completely overboard, but how do we give kids choices around food? What are some practical ways that parents can do this? Well, I mean, and it kind of depends how many kids you have in your family. Yeah. But when, you know, there's been a big difference. It used to be the last generation that you ate whatever your parents or your caretakers made for you, right? And uh, that was that. But now it's it's very much kid preference. And so if you have a couple of kids and they have very different preferences, this puts parents in a bind. So maybe if you have three kids, each of the children get to pick one meal a week and then the parents pick the other two, you, know, you have to decide again what your family value is in terms of how you want to do that. You, you don't want to have only foods that the children like or only foods that the parents like and the kids hate. You want to find some kind of way that you're not making separate meals all the time. And so, so I think that that's, um, you know, one thing to look at. And, and one of the issues we run into with picky eating is inevitably uh, the vegetables go. And so you're, you're, uh, you're really trying to deal with getting more of those anti-inflammation foods back into the diet and making them more interesting and so you would look at the kinds of foods they, they, they like to eat and perhaps make them in a different way. For example, I find that kids who are very stubborn about vegetables inevitably like uh, teriyaki, uh, broccoli, and beef. And if they don't eat the beef part, they'll eat the broccoli part because it's very flavorful. Yeah, that's so, a great So tip. you might find that adding more flavors, not just sugar uh, and sweetness, but you know, teriyaki sauce has, obviously has a lot of salt in it and a little bit of sugar. Uh, that it you know makes them more interesting to accommodate the modern palate, as you've mentioned. Yeah, and roasting vegetables is really great. I, I often put you know a whole sheet pan of broccoli roasted with a little bit of salt, and my kids literally devour it. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> this was supposed to be for dinner, or whatever right. the case may be. And um, yeah, so it's definitely finding different ways and just experimenting and let them exploring. Yeah, there's all kinds of, of programs now like Green Chef and Sun Basket where you can just even one day a week have a meal delivery with a new recipe if you're kind of uh, running out of recipes. <laughs> and they sometimes some of these services don't have the same recipe for a whole year. Yeah, that's so great. Have, yeah. yeah, so they have all kinds of things and it just helps you. We all have the same dull 12 recipes we make. And so it's nice to introduce something right? Just yeah. to shake up the, you know, the eating a little bit. So unless you're one of those chefs on TV, you probably have your handful of things and it's getting old. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I a see. great way to get your kids in the kitchen with you. If you pick out a yeah. recipe together or new right, vegetable. And a lot of these services pre-measure stuff. And so it's not, you know, you should be able to make the meal in 15 minutes and it's, it's more interesting. And it's, it's kind of kid friendly that way. Cause there's not a lot of uh, complex of, things that you have to do to make the meal. So, so yeah, try to be creative with that. I like your idea. Roasting is a good idea. You know, it, what I've noticed that even when you go to a really good restaurant, the weak item is often the vegetables. Right. Yeah. They're really good at searing the beef and, you know, making the chicken and, you know, stuff with whatever they do. But when it comes to the vegetables, sometimes they're just like plopped on the side <laughs> and they're not that very interesting. So they can be a challenge, but I think that with all the cooking channels and Instagram recipe thing. I mean, it, it's, they're out there. It's just a matter of reaching out and, and looking for stuff. That's great advice. So Kelly, tell me where can listeners go to get more information about you and these food issues? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.kellydorfman and Dorfman is D-O-R-F like fire, M-A-N.com. Or they can check out my book, which I just updated uh, at the beginning of this year, Cure Your Child with Food. That's uh, published by Workman. And there's a lot of information there. Great. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Kelly. My pleasure. 
That was such a great interview with Kelly Dorfman, and I was so thrilled to have her on the show. Definitely check out her book, Cure Your Child with Food, which we've linked to in the show notes because there's so much more that we didn't cover about picky eating and the connection between food and kids' health. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you could take a second, go into Apple Podcasts, leave a review and a rating so that we can reach more people. Also, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes. I'm Julie Revelon, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 